Gracious Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for sacrificing your privacy to give a saving message to your rebellious creation. We marvel at your grace, we marvel at your wisdom in giving at every point in redemptive history your people the words they needed to know you, to enjoy you, and to serve you. Holy Spirit, would you help us this morning to grasp what your word is and why it matters. Help us as a church to stand firmly on your word. Help us to hold it up to the world to say, this is what God is like. Lord, thank you for all you accomplished through the Reformation. Thank you that this morning we can be assured that we have your true gospel and we worship you in a way that is pleasing to you. Thank you for all of these things. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I love singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God in the local church on Reformation Sunday. Just gladdens my soul so much. Uh, what a gift singing is, the way God uses it to soothe us and sustain us and unite us around truth. We actually have some of the reformers to thank for returning uh, congregational singing to our worship services. Uh, happy Reformation Sunday to you this Tuesday, uh, October 31st, will be the 506th anniversary of the day that the German monk Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, unintentionally sparking a chain reaction that would become the Protestant Reformation. And so, in light of that anniversary, today's sermon will be a continuation of a six-part topical series that Pastor Donald began two years ago on the Reformation and the five solas, the five core truths that the Reformers rediscovered and proclaimed. If you're a visitor with us this morning, the sermon is a little different. We usually do. Normally, we preach through whole books of the Bible, verse by verse, careful to make the main point of each text the main point of each sermon. We do that because we believe it is the most faithful way to preach and the most helpful form of preaching for congregations to sit under. And today's sermon will actually explain why that is our conviction and currently, we're working through the Gospel of John, and so if you come back next week, uh, we'll be back there. Well, why dedicate six sermons to the Protestant Reformation? How do events that happened over 500 years ago in Europe still matter for the church today? I think a good way to answer that question is to consider what 
it was like to be a Christian in the late medieval ages. So let's imagine that we could transport this church gathering through time and space to Europe in the 16th century. What would our church service look like? Well, among the many differences, I think two would stand out most. Uh, The first would be that the focal point of the service would not be a sermon, but a sacrifice. The service leader would not be a preacher, but a priest. And even the architecture of the building would, would focus our attention front and center, not to a pulpit, but to an altar where the priest would perform the miracle of transforming the substance of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ to be re-offered as an atoning sacrifice to God for the sins of that day. Second difference that you would notice is that you don't understand a word that the priest is saying. The service is performed in Latin. The entire thing is unintelligible for, unintelligible for you. When the priest raises his hands to transform the bread, pronouncing hoc est corpus meum, to your ears it just sounds like hocus pocus. And that would include the singing too. There's no congregational singing. Uh, That was performed by professional choirs, also in Latin. So there you are, just an ignorant spectator. You're listening and you're watching but not participating, not understanding. Some of you listen to that description and think it doesn't actually sound all that different from services that are happening in this country today in evangelical churches. No Bible preaching, no gospel message, no congregational singing, no participation, just an entertaining experience led by professionals. And so we start to understand, don't we, why the Reformation still matters. Well, at that point in the service, you might start wondering what you're even doing there. Why go to church if you don't understand anything? Well, the reason you go is to receive grace. As it's dispensed to you by the priest through the sacraments. And you understanding any of what's going on really is not necessary for that to occur. It's enough for you simply to believe that what the church is teaching is true. Just to have that implicit faith is enough. If you position yourself in the right place at the right time, that grace will flow to you. And in that way, over time, you would be justified. You would be made more and more righteous and holy until eventually you would become personally worthy of salvation and heaven. But of course, after your death, you would still need to deal with any sin for which you had not performed adequate penance. See, the church at that time taught that the guilt incurred by your sin was forgiven by God, through the pardon of the priest. But the penalty remained. 
And you either had to pay that penalty through works of penance during your lifetime, or you had to suffer the penalty in purgatory after your death. And once you had been purged, then you were fit for heaven. But that purging could take thousands of years. Thankfully, there were shrines you could visit, relics you could view, indulgences you could purchase that could reduce your time in purgatory. And it was anger over the abuse of indulgences that prompted Martin Luther to post those 95 theses. So that's a brief snapshot of what it would have been like to be a Christian in 16th century Europe. This was the spiritual darkness into which the light of the Reformation burst with the rediscovery of five truths, the five solas, sola meaning alone, scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and the glory of God alone. The conflict between the Protestant reformers and the Catholic Church was over those theological convictions, and the protest was located in that small but indispensable modifier alone. The reformers protested that salvation is not a cooperative effort between God and man, but by grace alone, from beginning to end. They protested that salvation does not begin with faith and reach completion through personal effort, but through faith alone sinners are declared forgiven and righteous in God's sight. They protested that salvation was not dependent on any priest or personal righteousness or excess righteousness from saints, but is merited by the righteousness of Christ alone whose death was sufficient and effective for sin once for all time. And they protested that salvation did not depend on the infallible teaching of the church, but that scripture alone is the infallible source of divine revelation and our final authority. And they protested that salvation is from God and through God and to God. So it is to the glory of God alone that sinners are saved. In short, they protested that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And so for these reasons, we remember the Reformation. Brothers and sisters, it's really not an overstatement to say that had it not been for the Protestant Reformation, we may not be gathered here this morning proclaiming confessing the gospel that we do and worshiping the way that we do. In a sense, really, we commemorate the Reformation every week. You won't hear the names of Luther and Zwingli and Calvin every week, but if you were to bring a, a Reformation bingo card to our services, if you paid close attention, those five solas would line up every week. Not the exact words, but the message. Our newly renovated lobby, you've probably noticed, displays as a distinctive of our church the commitment to expositional preaching. Each week, you hear in plain language from this pulpit a pastor pointing you to Christ's finished work of atonement on the cross. And you're indebted to the Reformation for that. 
We are theological heirs of the Reformation, sons and daughters of the Reformation. And that's not to say that good theology and liturgy began with the Reformation. The Reformers did not believe that. They didn't claim that. But during the late medieval ages, the true gospel had been obscured and corrupted. And in the Reformation, it was recovered. So Reformation Sunday is a day to thank God for all he accomplished in that period of church history. It's a day to celebrate and to commit ourselves to contend earnestly for the faith which, which was once for all handed down to the saints so that the gospel is not obscured again in the generations that come after us. At this point, I, I do want to say that if we have any Catholics visiting with us today, uh, you may be feeling a little upset with me at this point, and I thank you for not walking out already. Truthfully, we're very happy that you are here, and please know that it's out of a love for you and a respect for you that we don't minimize our theological differences or pull any punches in our defense of the five solas. And if you hear something today and you want to discuss it further, our pastors would be very willing and happy to do that. Just find them after the service. How did the posting of 95 theses for academic debate on indulgences spark the Reformation? Well, though Luther did not intend it, the theses were quickly interpreted as a challenge to papal authority. Authority was the key issue. Who has the final authority over the church? Scripture or the Pope? As Luther's theology developed through debates and pamphlets he wrote following the theses, what made him so radical was his simple affirmation that Scripture, which cannot err, has authority over popes and councils, which can err. To Luther, Scripture alone was the infallible authority for the church. And for his teachings, he was classified as a heretic, excommunicated, and summoned to appear before the Holy Roman Emperor, where he was asked if he would recant his writings. After requesting time to consider his answer, he returned and boldly declared his now famous words, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. The heart of the Reformation was the recovery of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But the root of the Reformation was the principle of sola scriptura. It is the foundation from which the other four solas are derived. The Reformation was a recovery of the true gospel because it was a movement back to the Bible 
as the supreme authority for the church. So there is a brief overview of the Reformation and the five solas. And for the rest of our time, I want to focus our attention on that foundational principle, sola scriptura. What does sola scriptura mean? Well, I want to give you the basic definition, but don't write this one down. We're going to work from a, another definition, but the basic definition is that scripture alone, because it is God's inspired word, is the final authority for the church. See, sola scriptura is simply the logical consequence of the way that scripture presents its own nature and role. Just as scripture possesses a unique nature as the inspired word of God, so it functions with a correspondingly unique authority, namely an unparalleled supreme authority. If this were a Life at the Creek homily, uh, that's the outline I would use. If, if I were on an elevator and someone asked me, hey, what's the deal with sola scriptura? Which I suppose could happen. That's the 30 second answer I would give. But because this is our Sunday worship service and it is Reformation Sunday, I'd like to use a more amplified definition of sola scriptura that incorporates some closely related attributes of scripture and we won't be able to explore them exhaustively, but by touching on these, putting them all together, I hope we'll get a sense of sola scriptura in its fullness. That's the goal. And my prayer has been that we will all leave this morning with a greater grasp of what a glorious gift God has given to us in his word. That's, that's my heart in this sermon now, last year, Donald preached on soli deo gloria, reminding us that the glory of God alone is the most basic truth in all of life. I hope that today's sermon on sola scriptura reminds us that the Bible is the most valuable thing in all the world. So if you're taking notes, here's the definition to write down. This is the one we'll work from. Sola scriptura means that scripture alone because it is God's inspired word, is the inerrant, sufficient, clear, and final authority for the church. So let me say that again. Sola Scriptura means that scripture alone, because it is God's inspired word, is the inerrant, sufficient, clear, and final authority for the church. And we're gonna break that down into five statements that I will repeat as we go through the sermon. Five statements. The first is that the Bible is God's word. Second, God's word is flawless. Three, God's word is enough. Four, God's word is understandable. And five, God's word is supreme. So let's begin with that first statement. The Bible is God's word. There is probably no text more significant for our doctrine of Scripture than 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. So would you please turn there in your copies of God's Word. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. If you do not have a Bible with you, there should be one in the back of the seat in front of you. You'll find the text, I think, on page 996. 996. 
And if you don't own a Bible of your own, please take that one home with you today as our Reformation Sunday gift to you. 2 Timothy 3.16 describes the Bible's nature in this way. In verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. In other words, the Bible is God's speech, God's words. Well, in what sense is the Bible God's word? There are many views, but only one view is faithful to what scripture says about itself. And that view is known as verbal plenary inspiration. So there's two parts to this view. First, notice Paul doesn't claim the authors were inspired. He says the words, the words themselves are breathed out by God. That's the verbal part. Second, Paul doesn't claim that some of the words are breathed out by God. He says all the words are breathed out by God. And that's the plenary part. So verbal plenary inspiration means that the Bible doesn't merely contain the word of God and then it's up to us to decipher which parts are inspired, which parts are worthy to be obeyed. It means the entire Bible is the word of God, down to the words. And so when the Bible speaks, God speaks. How did God breathe out his words? Well, some of them he spoke or wrote directly, like the Ten Commandments. But mostly, he breathed out his words through human authors. And this is a profoundly mysterious process. Second Peter 1.21 tells us that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So while the human authors wrote exactly what they intended to write, their words were superintended by the Holy Spirit to be exactly what he wanted to say. Their human minds were active, their unique personalities were preserved, yet their message was God's message. So when you read the Bible, you are reading accounts that God himself has authored. Now, some conclude that if humans were involved in the writing of Scripture, then it must have errors. In this view, God's word comes to us like pure sunlight passing through a dirty window. But Scripture teaches us, as we've just seen, that the words are God-breathed, and the authors were spirit-carried. God was sovereign over the writing of scripture, guaranteeing that his word remained flawless. And just think of this. If the Son of God could take on human nature, yet without sin, then surely the Holy Spirit is able to communicate his words through human speech without error. So you see, the Bible is a completely unique book the words are God-breathed. The authors were spirit-carried. Critics of Christianity claim that the Bible is man-made. But Scripture claims the exact opposite. The origin of the Bible is not man, but God. Now, 
From Scripture's unique nature flows all of the following attributes that we'll consider. They are deductions based on the character of the author. But we'll see that they are also the resounding teaching of Scripture itself. So let's consider first the inerrancy of Scripture. God, who is truth, has breathed out a true word. So this is statement number two. God's word is flawless. Flawless. If you know anything about Luther's years as a monk, you know they were not spent peacefully. The problem of how a sinful man can stand in the presence of the high and holy God caused him great turmoil. So he pursued personal holiness with vigor. If there was a good work that a man could do to save his soul, Luther was going to do it. And he nearly killed himself in his effort, going days without food, nights without blankets, hours in confession, but still always plagued with the question, have I done enough? Have I done enough? And so that inner turmoil continued. He knew he had not satisfied God. So he turned to the saints and relics, to the treasury of merit, to make up what he lacked and to reconcile him to God. And the highest concentration of relics was in Rome. And when Luther was sent there on monastery business, he did not have eyes for the art or the history of Rome. He was there with a single purpose, to save his soul. He had one month. He wasn't going to waste any time. He celebrated all the masses, venerated all the relics, visited all the shrines that he could. But it was here in the holy city that disillusionment and doubt set in. Were these saints and relics really valid means of grace for him and his family? He climbed the stairs, which were said to have once stood in front of Pilate's palace, on his hands and knees, kissing each of the 28 steps, repeating the Lord's Prayer, in hopes of delivering his grandfather from purgatory. But when he reached the top, he exclaimed, who knows whether it's true? Who knows whether it's true? The issue of truthfulness would be for Luther what sets scripture apart in terms of authority. He argued that popes and councils can and have erred. So they cannot possess equal authority to scripture, which alone is God-breathed, and therefore cannot err. It's free from error in its original manuscripts and wholly truthful when properly interpreted. And don't let those qualifications that I just gave make you nervous. Pastor Donald recently preached a sermon explaining why we can have strong confidence that we possess faithful copies of those original manuscripts. I encourage you to go to the sermon archive on our church website and listen to that sermon if you missed it. It was on John 8. And later in the sermon, we'll say more about the proper interpretation of Scripture when we discuss sufficiency and clarity. But brothers and sisters, this conviction 
that scripture is inerrant. Do you see how it's an anchor of assurance for your soul? This word is truth you can rely on, absolutely. These are words you can trust completely. You can know that this word is true because God does not breathe out error. God is not a God who lies. He is faithful in all he says. His ways are holy, just, and true. Proverbs 30 verse 5 tells us that every word of God proves true. David says in Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in the furnace, purified seven times. That image conveys that no flaw can be found, no falsehood. This is true of scripture and scripture alone. So as God's inspired word, the Bible is the sole inerrant authority, the sole inerrant source of revelation. Well, not only is God's word inerrant, it is sufficient. Statement number three, God's word is enough. God's word is enough. About a month ago to celebrate my birthday, my wife and I went to the beach for the weekend. We thought about all the stuff we would need for a fun and relaxing vacation. We loaded it into the car and hit the road. But as we neared our destination, we realized that Katie had forgotten the beach chairs and umbrellas. It was probably more on me, actually. She had asked me to remind her of that, but the point is we didn't have everything we needed. But when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture... What we mean is that for our salvation journey from dead in sins to glorified in a new creation, God has packed into these 66 books everything we need. Nothing is missing. Nothing is lacking. We do not need oral church tradition to believe right doctrine and be saved and follow Christ to the glory of God. Scripture, our text tells us in verse 15, is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. To make you wise for salvation. You see, we are all born foolish. Foolish. We suppress the truth that's revealed to us by creation, the truth revealed to us in our own consciences that God exists. We live as though this material world is all there is and that there's no judgment that awaits us after death. It's foolishness. But then scripture comes to us, accompanied by the Holy Spirit, and clears away that foolishness, showing us Christ crucified, resurrected, and ascended, and that cross that we once viewed as foolishness, we now see as our salvation. Scripture is enough to make us wise for salvation, and Scripture is enough to equip us for the Christian life. Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable or useful, effective, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So scripture is enough to teach us. Scripture tells us everything we need to know to be saved, to worship God properly, to live before him faithfully. And that's why our worship here at Abner Creek is word-centered. It's why we read and preach from both Testaments and all genres, because we believe all scripture is useful for teaching. Do you know that October is Pastor Appreciation Month? Did you know that? Don't you appreciate our pastors for teaching us sound doctrine? Don't you appreciate that we leave from here each week having learned something profitable for our spiritual development because they faithfully say to us the words, open your Bibles. Church family, we do not ever want in this pulpit an entertainer. We want only pastor teachers because we don't need entertainment. We need doctrine-rich sermons. There is nothing more relevant, nothing more useful that our pastors can give us than sermons that explain the Bible and apply the Bible. I, I like how J.C. Ryle puts it. He says, a pastor who does not honor the Bible is as useless as a soldier without weapons, a builder without tools, a pilot without a compass, or a messenger without tidings. Useless. Scripture teaches us. It's enough to teach us and it's enough to rebuke us. It points out our sins and brings conviction. Think of Nathan, the prophet, confronting David with that story of the rich man who killed the poor man's cherished lamb to serve as dinner for his guest. When David heard that story, he said, that man deserves to die. And Nathan points to him and says, you are that man. And that is what scripture does for you. Sin is deceptive. Sin deceives us. We don't even see it in our lives often. But the author of Hebrews tells us, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Scripture points out your sin so that you do see it. And so that you confess like David, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's why we don't neglect meeting together. It's why we exhort one another so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, after rebuking us, Scripture tells us how to get back on the right path. It corrects us. Ever since moving back to the United States, I've noticed more and more roads have those bumper, I don't know, rumble strips, I don't know what they're called, along the side of the road, sometimes on the center line of the road too. You've hit those, haven't you, and heard that loud noise. I hit them a lot. Uh, what are those there for? Those are there to correct, to say, uh, the path you're on right now is heading to destruction. 
You need to go back. So, brother and sister, when you have drifted from the gospel, when your life is messed up, when you don't know how to do, what, what to do about how messed up your life is, scripture comes and tells you, this is the way, walk in it. Scripture is enough for that. And scripture trains us for righteousness. So it conforms our thinking and our living more and more to Christ. It is enough, the text says, to equip you fully to do all the good works that God has for you to do. There is nothing lacking. Now, it, it needs to be stressed that none of those things happen apart from the Holy Spirit. And we'll focus more on that in our next point. The clarity of Scripture. The clarity of Scripture goes hand in hand with its sufficiency because if you think about it, it just stands to reason that for God's word to be useful in these ways, it must be understandable. So statement number four, God's word is understandable. It was the position of the Catholic Church that scripture is unclear. If it were put in the language of the unlearned common people, that would certainly lead to doctrinal chaos. So in order for people to understand scripture properly, they needed the church's infallible interpretation. But in contrast, the reformers held that the saving message of scripture is understandable to ordinary people through ordinary means. And so it should not be limited to the academic, spiritual elite. Friends, seminary education is wonderful. It's helpful, but it's not necessary to grasp the essential message of the Bible. A mastery of the biblical languages is not essential to understand the saving message of the Bible. Those things that are necessary for salvation and godly living, they are found somewhere in the Bible in a form that is understandable to ordinary Christians through the use of ordinary means like listening to a sermon, joining a Bible study, reading a commentary. And reformers like William Tyndale gave their lives for that belief. To get the Bible into the hands of ordinary people in a language they could understand. Tyndale is the one who famously replied to a Catholic scholar, If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. And true to his word, Tyndale translated from the original Greek into English the New Testament. And he smuggled 16,000 copies of it into England. And for his efforts, he was captured, strangled, and burned in 1535. Well, does Scripture teach its own clarity? As we've already noted, for God's word to be effective, it must be understandable. God's word is an effective communication because God is an effective communicator. As he said through the prophet Isaiah, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, 
giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When God gave his commands to the Israelites, in that very passage that Mark read for us earlier in the service, what did he expect parents to do with his words? Teach them diligently to their children. Who does the psalmist tell us scripture is able to make wise? The simple. What imagery does the psalmist apply to God's word over and over again? Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Is that not an image of clarity? Jesus certainly believed in the clarity of Scripture. During his ministry, you remember, he often asked, have you not read what God said to you? What did Moses command you? Haven't you read what David did? What is written in the law? The Apostle Paul as well would support his arguments asking, what does Scripture say? Isn't the assumption that Scripture is understandable? Well, now you might be thinking, wait a minute, I've read the Bible, and there are a lot of difficult texts. Well, yes, that's, that's right. Some things are hard to understand, as Peter says. Not every text is equally clear, and clarity does not always entail simplicity. Here's how Augustine explained it. He said, The Holy Spirit has generously planned Holy Scripture in such a way that in the easier passages, he relieves our hunger, and in the more obscure, he drives away our pride. Practically nothing is dug out from those obscure texts, which is not discovered to be said very plainly in another place. That's what Sola Scriptura affirms, that the saving message of Scripture is clear, and you can approach even the difficult texts confident that with the Holy Spirit's aid, as you grow in your familiarity with the whole Bible and you compare the difficult texts with the simpler ones, you can come to a sufficient understanding of them. Not an exhaustive understanding, and likely many other people will understand them better than you, but a sufficient understanding. They are hard to understand, but not impossible to understand. It does, however, require time and effort and humility. So friends, take heart in your Bible study. God has given you an understandable message because he wants you to understand what he has to say. He's also given you gifted teachers not to control the text, and keep it to themselves, but to help you see for yourself what it says. And also take heart in your evangelism. Let the clarity of Scripture motivate you to share it with others. Because, yes, from time to time, you will trip over your words and speak unclearly, but God won't. The pastor in the pulpit and the Christian in conversation can both deliver God's truth, and call on people to respond because they know 
that God has given an understandable word. Along with teachers, God has given you a community to assist you in your reading of the word. Christians, both past and present, to alert you when you're reading something against the grain of interpretive history. So find a discipleship partner and read a book of the Bible together. And on that journey through the book, invite a Christian from the past to ride along with you in the passenger seat as a helpful guide. Read old books of Christian theology and devotion. It's helpful. But most importantly, God has given you his spirit. The one who moved the human authors to write God's words is the one who opens your eyes to understand his words. But still, you might ask, if scripture is clear, why are there so many disagreements over interpretation? Uh, That can be a fair question, but it isn't always a fair question. I want to warn us to be careful of criticizing scripture for lacking clarity. Many have used that argument as a subtle way to abandon the authority of scripture over their lives and adopt whatever practice they want. Because after all, if there is no clarity in the text, then readers can't be held accountable, can they? Keep your humility when you read the word, but lose the criticism. We can cover our own darkness by claiming the text is obscure. That's a paraphrase of something Martin Luther said once. So why are there so many interpretive disagreements? Well, the problem is not the scriptures, but the readers. We often lack familiarity with the text, with the language, with the storyline of scripture. We can easily misread something. We can easily impose an outside idea onto the text. So imagine a man with mud on his eyes trying to see the sun. The problem is not with the sun's brightness, but with the man's vision. He needs someone to wipe the mud from his eyes. And in the same way, the problem is not that scripture isn't clear, it's that we are ignorant, we are sinful. As Sinclair Ferguson says, Sin-blinded eyes cannot see that Scripture is the Word of God. Sin-darkened hearts cannot respond to it as the Word of God. And sin-deafened ears cannot hear the voice of the Father addressing them in it. So, if sinners are to understand God's Word in a saving way, the Holy Spirit must remove that mud of spiritual blindness from their eyes. And if you are a growing, mature Christian, you still have sin that clouds your judgment. You still are ignorant. You must always approach the Bible with humility, praying, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And remember that when you pray that prayer, you are not asking the Holy Spirit for new revelation, but illumination of the revelation already given in the word from the Holy Spirit because God's word is sufficient. Well, now we come to our last point and really the core aspect of Sola Scriptura, authority. 
because scripture possesses a unique nature, we would expect to see it function in the Bible with an unparalleled authority. And that is exactly what we find. So our fifth statement, God's word is supreme. At the time of the Reformation, Rome held that divine revelation has come uh, not from one, but two infallible sources, scripture and tradition. In addition to written scripture, there was also an oral tradition of Jesus' teaching to his disciples, which had been passed down to the following generations through the official teaching office of the church. And this tradition held equal authority alongside scripture. But against that two-source view, the reformers held, or the, yeah, the reformers held up scripture as the supreme, infallible source of divine revelation, the only source of divine, of infallible divine revelation. So, sola scriptura is all about the relationship between the church and scripture and tradition. And one wrong turn that you can make is to reject tradition completely. This is how sola scriptura is often mischaracterized. As if scripture is the only authority for the church. But that's not what sola scriptura claims. Claims it's the only infallible authority. That is the Protestant position. The reformers simply argued for tradition to be subordinated under scripture. To the reformers, creeds and councils were valuable, but not infallible. And they regularly quoted favorably from the church fathers. They believed that they were to be listened to and obeyed as far as they agreed with scripture. We could compare their authority to an umpire at a baseball game. He has authority, but he's not infallible, as any baseball fan will tell you. Scripture alone is the infallible authority for the church. Now, there were some radical groups during the Reformation that believed that the true church had been lost, and so they disregarded tradition altogether and emphasized individual interpretation. You could say their cry was, uh, not scripture alone, but me alone. A representative of those groups is quoted saying, foolish Ambrose, Augustine, Jerome, Gregory, of whom not even one knew the Lord, so help me God, nor was sent by God to teach. Rather, they were all apostles of the Antichrist. Christian, be on guard against an overly skeptical view of tradition. It's dangerous and foolish to suppose you don't need help from the godly brothers and sisters of the past. The historic Christian confessions and creeds are helpful guides. They have stood the test of time. What, scripture, what, what Sola Scriptura says is only that those creeds and confessions are reformable. Scripture alone is unreformable because its origin is God and not man. There's an encounter recorded in Matthew and Mark's Gospels that bears some remarkable similarities to this clash over Sola Scriptura during the Reformation. If you would, please turn 
to Mark chapter 7. I'd like to read the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 7. Sorry, I don't have the page number if, if you're using the seat Bible. Mark chapter 7. We'll read the first 13 verses and just, just listen and see if this sounds familiar. Pay careful attention now to what Holy Scripture says. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. See, much like the Church of Rome, the Pharisees, elevated the uninspired oral tradition of the elders that supposedly traced all the way back to Moses to the same level of inspired scripture and considered them equally binding and authoritative. And the common people who did not read and study the law, they accepted everything that the Pharisees told them. But how did Jesus react to the Pharisees? He plainly and sternly rebuked them for equating man's tradition with God's law. Now, thankfully, none of us here have ever been guilty of binding the consciences of believers to man-made traditions, right? Now, I think with a little reflection, our Lord's rebuke of the Pharisees in this text hits many of us close to home. It should be the aim of every Christian to live before God and man with a clean, clear conscience. How can we do that? By knowing and doing the will of God. Well, how do we know what that is? The word of God reveals that to us. But do you see what the Pharisees were doing? They were binding the people's consciences to man-made traditions, saying, if you don't follow this tradition, you're defiled. That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? They're saying, you're sinning. They're saying, God is displeased with you because you didn't wash your hands properly. 
But that wasn't sin. Friends, it's so important that we get the definition of sin right, isn't it? Sin is any failure to meet God's standard, not man's standard. It's any violation of God's law, not man's tradition. Who has the authority to define sin and to define righteousness? Scripture alone. We cannot say something is sin unless God says it's sin. And if he says it's sin, we have no authority to excuse it. Now, as we just said, there are other authoritative voices for the Christian. Creeds, confessions, church leaders. But ruling above them all is Scripture. There are many helpful traditions and many that are not helpful. And we can never allow them to define sin and righteousness for us. We can never set aside God's word and replace it with human tradition. Scripture alone has the final say. And we listen and follow those other voices only as far as they align with Scripture. Because the words of Scripture are from God. They possess unparalleled authority for the church. Well, it's time to wrap up. Church, the battle over biblical authority did not end in the 16th century. In many ways, the fight has only intensified. During the Reformation, the Catholic Church, though it rejected sola scriptura, always affirmed the Bible's inspiration and inerrancy. But today, many self-professed Christians sitting in pews, even standing behind pulpits, deny those doctrines. They claim the, that much of the Bible is fairy tale, not factual. They say many of its descriptions of God and ethics are immoral and problematic. Since it's primarily a human book, it's filled with inaccuracies and contradictions. Though they would say it still contains the Word of God, and so those portions are authoritative. So you see, yes, the Reformation still matters today. And as heirs of the Reformation, we need that Protestant courage to proclaim the message of sola scriptura into our modern context that wants to elevate human reason or subjective experience as final authorities. Because without Scripture, there is no message of salvation. Scripture alone, because it is God's inspired word, is the inerrant, sufficient, clear, and final authority for the church. The Bible is the most valuable thing in all the world. Let us not neglect this most precious gift. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We ask that you would help us as a church, as households, and as individuals to stand firmly on Scripture alone. In Jesus' name, amen.